Now, traditions can be a very funny thing. I'm sure that you've heard stories about tra- strange traditions that are maintained, sometimes even maintained when the whole reason for doing them is completely lost. No one's sure why they're doing those things anymore. Uh, one of my favourite stories was of a newly married couple. Uh, the wife decided that she would cook her new husband a roast every week, just as her mum had always done for her dad. So in preparing the roast, she got the roast beef out and she cut the end off either end of the roast before putting it into the oven. And for the first couple of times that she did this, the husband wasn't quite sure why, so he thought he'd better ask, why do you cut the end off the roast before you put it into the oven? And she said, well, I really don't know. That was just always the way that my mum did it. So I just assumed that it must be the right thing to do. So I've just kind of kept doing that. So next time she saw her mum, she said, Mum, why, when you cook a roast, do you cut either end off? Has it got to do with, like, the juices or how the meat cooks or something? And the mum said, look, I have to confess, I I really don't know. That was just always the way that my mum did it. So next time she was around visiting her grandmother, she said, Grandma, why, when you cook a roast, do you cut the end off either end of the roast before putting it into the oven? She said, that's very simple, darling. The tray that I had was too small and I could never fit it in there. (laughs) What started out as a very sensible, practical thing to do became a tradition that was maintained when no one knew why it was that they were doing it, but they still kept on doing it. Now, you might be able to see where this is going. That can happen in churches, can't it? That there are traditions that we establish, sometimes for very good and very practical reasons, but we keep doing them even though, when the, even though the reason has been completely lost. Um, can I give you one of my favourite examples within the church? Wearing robes is one of those traditions. See, prior to the Reformation, prior to the establishment of Protestant churches like the Presbyterian Church, uh, the priests wore robes that were considered to have almost magical qualities. They would say a special prayer before they put on each of the vestments and there would be ornate things that were embroidered and had jewels on them. So at the beginning of the Anglican Church or the Church of England in the in the early 1500s, the newly formed church wanted to stop all of those superstitious practices. They didn't want those things happening in the newly formed church. They insisted that ministers wear none of those robes, that the only thing that they were to wear was a surplice or a cassock, which was just common street clothes, what everybody would have been wearing in those days. They wanted to make sure that the minister wasn't separate from the rest of the congregation, different from the rest of the congregation. He was supposed to be dressed just the same. Now, I'm pretty sure that the Archbishop of Canterbury thinks that he's maintaining the traditions of the Church of England by what he's wearing here. But that's not what the tradition was. The tradition was to not look different from everybody else, to not stand out, to be one of the members of the congregation. Traditions, I want to quickly say, are not bad. But they can become bad, especially when we don't understand why we're doing them anymore. Or worse, if we end up doing them when it's something that's actually quite contrary to what it is that we ought to be doing. 
Now we're going to confront some traditions in the passage that we're actually looking at today, uh, some unhelpful traditions that had had begun in the church, in, in, uh, among God's people, Israel, at the time of Jesus. But let's go back to the beginning of the passage we're looking at, Matthew chapter 14 and verse 22. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and he sent his disciples across the other side of the lake, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I thought I'd just give you a bit of an idea of where we are. We're right up in the north of Israel, and uh, this is an aerial shot of the Sea of Galilee. I, I'm, I'm told it's close to 20 kilometres north to south, and around about 12 kilometres east to west. Um, but Jesus is sending his disciples from one part up in the north of the lake, across to another part in the north of the lake, only a reasonably short distance, probably just a few kilometres. Um, Jesus has gone, after he sent his disciples off, to a quiet place to pray by himself. It's funny, whenever I read those things, it really challenges me about my prayer life, I've got to say. I mean, if Jesus, the man who is God, still needs to take time to go and pray to his heavenly Father, well, that's a pretty good example that I ought to make sure that I'm making time to do it as well. So Jesus has sent them across this short distance across the lake. Uh, The disciples are out in the boat and a storm comes up and probably a fairly fierce storm. Uh, There were mountains all around and the winds would squall down into the Sea of Galilee and there could be some nasty storms in there. Well, it's about three or four o'clock in the morning that this actually happens. And then Matthew rather matter-of-factly says this in verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. There's no explanation. He doesn't say, and you won't believe what happened next. He just says Jesus goes out to where they are, walks on the water, heads out to where they are in the lake. And we're told that the disciples were actually terrified which I can understand. I'm sure that if I was sitting in a boat three or four kilometres off the water and someone walked out on the water to me, I would be terrified as well. Well, Jesus identifies himself and as soon as Peter realises that it's Genesis, big buffhead Peter, what does he want to do? Well, he says he wants to walk on water as well. But did you notice what it says? Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. So Jesus tells him to come. And so Peter steps out of the boat and he starts walking towards Jesus on the water. But then look at what happens, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. When he sees Jesus, he believes but when he sees the wind, he doubts. Now, you've got to be careful not to get too carried away here and read too much into these miracles, because at a very basic level, I think what this miracle is wanting to show us is the power and the authority that Jesus has. Jesus rules over creation. He can walk on water if he wants to. He has that kind of power. And the sea, for people back in those days, was considered to be a dangerous place. It was even considered to be the place where evil dwelt. You didn't want to go out on the sea. It was a, a fishermen were highly respected men because they endangered their lives by what they were doing in these dangerous things. But Jesus is making a pretty profound statement, isn't he, by walking on water. 
And we see that in other miracles that Jesus performed as well, is that he does have complete control over creation. But there's also a lesson in here about faith, isn't there? Faith is not some energy source that I can muster up within myself and if I generate enough faith, if I think hard enough about it, I can make anything happen. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is exactly what we see here. Trusting Jesus, not trusting yourself. Peter knew that the only way that he could go out and walk on that water was if Jesus enabled him to do it. So that's why he says to, says to Jesus, you call me and I know that I can come. Peter's not saying, I've got enough faith, I think I can do this by myself, Jesus. No, it's dependence upon Jesus. That's what faith is. So Peter expresses his dependence upon Jesus. Jesus asks him out onto the water and Peter goes. But when he starts worrying about the wind, when he stops trusting Jesus... Well, that's when he starts to sink. Now, let's be clear. There's a simple application here. This was a unique situation where Jesus is calling one of his 12 disciples to walk on water. Jesus is not calling every one of us to walk on water. This is not advice for what you do next time you miss the ferry. Okay, So that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But he is calling us to trust him. And he's calling us to trust him even when the circumstances around us might seem otherwise. Now, at the beginning of chapter 15, we confront these traditions. Um, But could you please note something right at the very beginning of this? The, The Pharisees are the ones who have picked this fight with Jesus. Jesus didn't go looking for them. They came looking for him. In fact... They've actually gone to quite extraordinary lengths to come and see Jesus. They've come all the way from Jerusalem. A trip, whoops, a trip of around about a hundred kilometres. They've travelled from Jerusalem down in the south up to the north end of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus is. So, so look at what it says right at the beginning, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? You got the question there, did you? These guys have come all the way from Jerusalem. 100 kilometres they have travelled to say to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Wow. I mean, does that seem a little bit ridiculous to anyone else? They've come all that way to ask that question. Of all of the things that you could have asked, asked Jesus, of all of the challenges that you could have made to him, they say, why, do you, why don't you make your disciples wash their hands before they eat? This is not a question of personal hygiene. This is not about having dirty hands. Even if your hands were completely, perfectly clean the Pharisees had this tradition that they had established that you needed to wash your hands before you eat. The tradition seemed to have stemmed from what the priests did before they went into the temple, that they had to wash their hands and their feet. So rather than ask, answering their question, Jesus fires a question back at them, and let me paraphrase the question for you. Why do you encourage people to ignore God's law when it clearly says something so that they can just conform to your little man-made traditions? 
That's what Jesus says to them. Now what he's talking about is this. The scribes and the Pharisees had developed this system where you could actually make a vow, a gift to God of perhaps money or property. You could promise that that would be given to the temple for the use by the priests uh, at the temple. And in the example that Jesus gives, a son has made this vow. They called it korban. That was the type of vow that you were making, devoting something to God. And if you devoted that to God, well, you could be relieved of other financial responsibilities that you may have had, like financial responsibility towards your parents, that you could be relieved of looking after them because you've given this money to God. And the tradition was used that way. You could actually get out of honouring your mother and father. One of the Ten Commandments, you could actually get out of that one if you actually devoted this money to the temple. As far as the scribes were concerned, it was quite simple. You've made a vow to God, you have to honour that. If your family suffer, well that's sad and unfortunate. But who's more important, God or your family? Well Jesus says, can't you see what you're doing? Can't you see where your traditions have taken you? One of the Ten Commandments about honouring your mother and father and you're telling people they can ignore that one if they like. And then he points them to Isaiah, verse 7. It says this, Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, Jesus says. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And on the matter of clean and unclean hands, he does get back to that. He goes on to explain that it's actually not what goes into a man that makes him clean or unclean. I mean, he says to them, you've got the whole clean, unclean thing completely wrong. You've got it messed up altogether. Cleanliness has got to do with your heart, not to do with your hands or your food. And I love what the disciples say to him in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. The disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? I expect verse 13 to read, and Jesus said to them, oh, duh, the Pharisees were offended. Really, which part were they offended by? Were they offended by the fact that Jesus said their traditions were a joke? Were were they offended by the bit where Jesus said that they encourage people to actually break God's law by what they do? Or was it the bit about honouring God with their lips but their hearts being far from him? Which bit do you think might have offended them the most? Now can I say, after reading a passage like this, it's very easy to point the finger at those nasty scribes and Pharisees, isn't it? But I think what we're supposed to do is actually think about the traditions that might have crept in around our lives or possibly even into our churches. Maybe traditions that actually once made sense, that were good and helpful things that pointed people in the right direction. Maybe traditions that now are doing the very opposite of what they were supposed to do because we've actually forgotten why it is that we do them. Now, it's no surprise that the very next episode in this passage, starting at verse 21, is also to do with uncleanness, but it's not about unclean hands, it's actually about unclean people. We're told that Jesus has moved further north, and he's moved up to Tyre and Sidon, so he's way up on the northern boundary of Israel, and he's going to be coming in contact with lots of people, non-Jewish people, non-Israelites. 
And we're told about a Canaanite woman from that vicinity. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And did you notice what Jesus says? He doesn't say anything. And do you know what I think he's doing? I think he's waiting to see what other people say. He's waiting to see what views get expressed. So how do others react? Well, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, tell this woman to go away. She's a Gentile, for goodness sake, Jesus. We shouldn't be mixing with her kind and she's a woman. And she's just annoying us. But the Gentile woman's actually very clear in her understanding of who Jesus is, isn't she? Did you see how she addresses him? Lord, son of David. She knows who this guy is. This is not just some miracle worker who's blown into town and I can't quite remember his name. No, she knows that this is the Messiah. She might be a Canaanite woman, but she gets it. She gets who Jesus is. She's completely convinced that Jesus is the one who can actually do something to heal her daughter. Now, I think we have to be very careful how we read these next few verses. I'm not sure what you thought when they were being read. Jesus has clearly shown that his mission is to bring a kingdom that goes way beyond the borders of national Israel. This is not just a kingdom for Abraham and his descendants. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every person. But it's it's a kingdom that starts in Israel. The end of Matthew's gospel, the very final words from Jesus, are go and make disciples of all nations. We want everybody in this kingdom. So you need to have that in mind when you hear what Jesus says here. So have a look at verse 24. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That was a pretty common understanding of the people of Israel at that time, that when the Messiah came, it would only be for those who were Abraham descendants. You'd need to show your birth certificate. You'd need to actually prove your lineage to actually be a part of this kingdom. But Jesus has already healed the Roman soldier's servant and commended him for his faith. So Jesus clearly knows that the kingdom that he's bringing in is way bigger than one for the descendants of Abraham. See, what I think is actually happening in this little dialogue is Jesus is is challenging the thinking of national Israel at that time. And he's probably challenging the thinking of his disciples as well, because I'm not sure they quite get it. When the woman heard Jesus say that, she pleads with him again. Now again, the next thing that Jesus says, well, it actually sounds downright rude, doesn't it? The people of Israel used to call the Gentiles dogs. That was the way that they viewed them. Wanted nothing to do with these people. It was the prevailing thinking in Israel. And judging from what the disciples have said, probably the prevailing thinking for the disciples. So look at what Jesus says. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And the woman comes back with a brilliant statement. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
See, we see it again. Jesus keeps encountering opposition where he, where he should be encountering faith. And he keeps encountering faith where he'd expect to encounter ambivalence. Here's this Canaanite woman who believes in Jesus and knows that he can do this. And then there's the religious leaders chasing him with stupid questions about washing your hands. I think one of the things that actually shines through the Gospels all the way, and sometimes we don't even notice it, is the compassion that Jesus has for people. I mean, here he is, God in the flesh, and he takes time to deal with this woman that the disciples wouldn't have even bothered to talk to. But you see it all the way through the Gospels, don't you? Jesus continues to have compassion on the outcasts, the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the nobodies, the Gentiles. I mean, look at the end of chapter 15. Jesus feeds the 4,000. He'd fed the 5,000 just a few verses before. He feeds the 4,000 now. But have a look at what it says in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They've already been here with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Jesus has just spent this considerable time healing these people and teaching these people and now he wants to make sure that he feeds them before they go. Now it might be really easy to look at a passage like that and say, oh yeah, but he's God, he's capable of doing that. But you can also imagine that he might have had more important things to do than worry about getting lunch for these people. Jesus is is motivated by compassion for people, by love for people. It's not that he had a program that he had to run through. And it's not simply that he had a mission to complete. His orders were to do these things. He's driven by compassion everywhere he turns. And can I say, I think that's one thing that we need to make sure that we work harder at. That we're actually driven by a love for people, by a compassion for people. We need to make sure that our Christian lives are motivated by compassion for people. There's a joke among school teachers that uh, schools would be a much, much better place if you didn't have all of these stupid students hanging around. Well, I think sometimes Christians can actually feel the same. We can feel that people get in the way of the things that we need to do. But here's Jesus, driven by compassion for people. People who need to be loved. People who need to be cared for. People who need to be fed. People who need to be saved. How about we pray? Now, Father, as we see the heart of your son Jesus on view here, we are challenged by his compassion and by his love for people. And we do want to ask that you would give us a heart that beats after his. We want to ask that you would help us to be more concerned to care for people and to love people, to not see the people around us as being difficulties or problems or standing in the way of what we should be doing. 
but help help us to see them as the people that we need to love, the people we need to show compassion to, the people we need to care for. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have shown us in your son Jesus. And we want to pray that you would help us to reflect that love in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.